0: Ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would talk to Alan on Meet Me in the Field. I cannot recall having formally met Alan, but I Got to know him when I came into recovery and started attending lunchtime narcotics and Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in the Central Methodist Mission Church on Green Market Square in Cape Town. Alan is the minister there. He normally plays guitar and sings a few songs before the daily lunchtime service in the church. He seemed like a really cool guy and he actually greeted us addicts and alkies walking through the church to get to our meeting venue. I initially thought of that as quite weird. I still thought of myself as unacceptable that early in recovery, but between Sharon, who worked physically in the church, and Alan, I never felt anything but acceptance, and I even want to go as far as say, loved? I shall never forget the day that we unlocked our venue, and there was a table set, covered with a white cloth and lovely finger food and cold drink set up. The church had a function, and actually thought of sharing their lovely goods with us. I was in awe. My upbringing in church was very different from what I was experiencing at this church. I actually became so comfortable there that I would go on my knees and pray and meditate in the church before meetings. This concept of love and leading by example made a huge impact on me. So when I drew up my potential list of Meet Me The Field guests, I was not surprised that Alan was one of the first names on the list. He was for me spirituality personified but I never thought that I would actually go as far as to ask him to participate. Thanks to Yaku suggesting that I get some clergies to share their spiritual journeys with us, I took the plunge and asked, what was the worst that could have happened? He could just have said no, but he accepted the invitation immediately, and I am incredibly grateful for that. May you get out of this chat as much as I did. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There's also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on the first layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddi.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Sit back and enjoy. Alan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Um, I'm so, so happy to be here, number one, and so grateful for you to take this time. I saw, when we tried to set the appointment, and you gave me the diary times, I thought, this man has no time in his diary, so for you to make an hour available is really something huge for me. What keeps you this busy?
1: Really, I actually don't think I am too busy. (laughs) Not? Um, No. I, I guess I guard my time and allocate my time. So, you're familiar with the 12 Steps. Um, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Movement, had the 12 Steps of the Helper. And one of them was, don't just go to those who need you, go to those who need you most. Ah. And part of that is around just our time management. So, I may come across like I'm busy, but I, I don't feel I'm very busy. I don't run from one thing to the next. You look very calm, I
0: must say. So it's
1: about organising our time and prioritising. And I guess I'm also drawn towards the contemplative life. Okay. The quieter...
0: So you're good at setting boundaries. You're you're good at saying, this is... How did I say? Deal with the the important things, not with the urgent things. Mm. I wish I could learn that. I'm a people pleaser. I'm a codependent people pleaser. So I rush around trying to keep everybody happy. And eventually kind of stands on and say, where am I in this? And then I feel selfish and guilty. <laughs> and well,
1: when, I, when I started the ministry, you know, on, on a Sunday after the service, people shake your hand and say, you know, thank you. And then some people would say, I must come and see you. So when I first, 20 odd years ago, I would then make a list of these people. And on Monday, my day off, I'd phone all of them and make oh, appointments. <laughs> And it was more about my need to be needed than their need in actual fact. Yeah. And these days I'll say, I'd love to see you. You've got my number, give me a call. And, yeah. and the honesty is that 99% of people never phone.
0: I hear you. I hear you. So you are a Methodist reverend. Is that the correct term? Methodist minister. Yeah. Methodist minister. How did that happen? Are you South African? Yes. And where did you grow up?
1: I was born in Cape Town.
0: Ah, you're a local boy. Not a lot of you around.
1: (laughs) Born in Cape Town, but grew up most of my life in Johannesburg. Okay. Where in Johannesburg was that? Um, Northern suburbs of Johannesburg and have been back here for 10 years now. Okay. Actually come back to the community that I was born into, I guess.
0: So you were freshly back by the time that I started seeing you in the church next door. Because that was eight years, eight and a half years ago. Yeah. And did you grow up religiously?
1: That's not a word I would use. But to say that my dad was a minister. Okay. And so we were never, the important thing around, I think, our childhood was that we were never forced to go to a church. So from the age that we could literally say no and look after ourselves at home, we didn't have to.
0: Are you serious? Mm. That's
1: interesting. So, it's to force religion is is to is it's like forcing you to fall in love with someone. It's pretty much impossible. Yeah. However, I was intrigued by the stories. I never went to Sunday school much as a kid. That bored me to tears. <laughs> but I did go uh, to the services where the adults were, because I was intrigued by the stories around Jesus. Okay.
0: So it was a, a useful fascination.
1: Yeah, and the fascination has never never stopped around... Again, I come back to the story of Jesus. So you use the word reverent or minister. The word that I would use for myself is storyteller, gospel okay. storyteller. But I see my primary function as a storyteller of the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news. And the... the like you're you have artists that work in oils or pastel or stone or clay i work with a story and I try and mold other stories from that story that's basically what i do and the hope is that the stories that i tell connect the ancient story with people's everyday story
0: yeah
1: that's fantastic the
0: hope. what did you study
1: straight away after school because of being a white south african it mm-hmm. was conscription in the military, which I uh, refused to do. So that was at a time where I refused to go to the military and at the same time as that, so there was an arrest that took place and uh, uh, my trial started but was uh, abandoned because of the changes that were happening in the country. So that was one thing that took place straight after okay. school. The next thing I studied, I was studying the UNISA, Uh, theology, sociology, just in the arts, and had always wanted to go to be uh, a minister. I've never wanted to be anything else, or do anything else. So, uh, and that remains true. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. What year was that, that
0: the military thing happened? 1990,
1: 1989, 1990.
0: I was in the military then, yeah. and that was when the system that's it. changed. Yeah. I went in you know, on two years and did one and a half. And I was very upset about it. Not because I enjoyed the military at all. In terms of my own freedom, the most freedom I've ever had, that's where I left the shackles of, of everything that bound me personally behind. And I thought, I'm going to live my life. So it was a very amazing phase. And I'm still very good friends with people that I've made in the army. You also see you studied sociology. Mm-hmm. And how far did you go with that?
1: i oh, just part of one's degree. So when you study for theology, there's always an encouragement to study psychology, sociology, philosophy. Yeah. In other words, uh, any of the arts. Because our, our subject is about the human condition. Yeah. I did my honors in sociology. So that's a
0: special interest for me. At some stage, I started a master's, but I lost interest very, very quickly. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very upset about it, because the master's thesis was going to be about the sociology about unmet expectation. And I think it would have been applicable very much today to see how we could deal with, with a lot of situations that we're dealing with in, in life at the moment. And now you qualified, and what happened then?
1: Well, as a methods minister, you agreed to go where you sent, which is another... Aspect that I appreciate because it it's the practice of releasing control over one's life, and so the church structures can decide where I end up, and so I I spent a few years in velkom and and then about eleven years in Midrand okay. uh, in Johannesburg, and then have come down to Cape Town for the last ten years. So for the last, you know. 23, 24 years have been beholden to where the church decides you to be. And I appreciate that it means that you end up going to different communities, perhaps communities that I would not necessarily have chosen to go to. And you learn that people are people are people. The privilege of this work is that you, you get planted, literally planted into a community and different communities, diverse communities, communities with different histories, etc., and you get planted in that community and you get an opportunity to grow. My mom always used to say around the, every time there'd be a change, she'd say you've got you know, new people to love and new people to be loved by.
0: Yeah.
1: And that pretty much sums it up.
0: How did you... It sounds just weird for me, the, the move from Johannesburg to a town like Valcom. And was Valcom
1: predominantly Afrikaans? Well, again, so the church crosses a whole lot of barriers that society struggles to cross, so there are different congregations and made up of, of different cultures and languages. So in some regard, there was a lot of Afrikaans, obviously, a lot of people from various parts of the country who have come from uh, rural areas working on the mines. So a real, a complete cross-pollination of okay. people in the, in the country, and that's the that's the gift of, of being a church minister that you get to really explore and, and get to know at a, quite a deep level because you, you're meeting people at very intimate times, at birth, at death, yeah. uh, celebration, trauma, tragedy, suffering, and you are present and witness people doing life in the most significant moments of their life, yeah. uh, which is a huge privilege, obviously, and gift. Do you love people? Well, that's the, that's the, that's the journey, figure out what that means. So I find, I'll answer that question in a number of ways, on one level, yes and no, and that's the exploration of what love, what does love mean, what do we mean by that? I'm not, a, I'm not a people person in so far as I, I find I'm an introvert and so too many people drain me. But do I care for the well-being of, of people? Yes, certainly. And especially those people who, for whom society does not care for. Okay. Society, it seems, is always shaped to favour some at the expense of others. and Throughout history, that never seems to change. The, the, the groups that are discriminated against changes, but the fact there is discrimination, that some are yeah. left out, some are favoured, um, seems to be the, the constant human struggle to, fight, to keep on expanding our sense of compassion and our sense of understanding of humanity.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. My sociology professor always said, or once, said to me, Freddie, you have to understand we'll always have the poor with us. In the same way, we'll always have the, the people who fail with us. <laughs> if I put the exam paper on this notice board two days before the exam, we still get people who fail.
1: So the words, the poor will always be with us, are from Jesus. Yet Jesus is quoting uh, from the book of Deuteronomy. And in the context of, of where those words originally come from, you know, Means something very different to how many people use those words. Oh, I some, know people, that. some people use the words as if there's nothing we could ever do, that it's a permanent fixture. But in fact, the words are spoken in, a, in the, if you read the, the chapter around it, about our responsibility to care oh. and to relieve suffering. So it's not to be used as a justification. And and another interpretation could be this, that once you've encountered the poor, they will never leave you. Ah. Oh. The hope is that they will, they will always be with us, meaning that all the decisions of my life will be informed by the presence of the poor. Yeah. That they will inform my conscience on how I live.
0: That's a beautiful way to look
1: at it. Yeah. That's a lovely way, actually. And I
0: prefer to see it that way. Now you arrive in Cape Town. Am I correct? This is the congregation we, you you are. It's quite historically significant. Is that the oldest con- congregation in Cape Town? Or something like that?
1: So, so what happened is the actual church building that's there now, there was one prior to that. So it's situated on Green Market Square. Green Market Square is obviously very significant because it was where the abolition of slavery was announced. And the reason for that was that obviously there were slaves that would attend to the green market to bring home vegetables and that to the family that where they were working and that sort of thing. So that was the largest gathering of slaves and that was where the abolition of slavery was announced. The significance of that congregation situated right there was that um, Reverend Shaw came in 1806 and he had actually written to Lord Charles Somerset for permission to come across from the UK here to be a missionary in the colony of the day. And Lord Charles Somerset had refused him permission. And he came nevertheless. And when he came, he did the courtesy thing to go personally to the governor of the Cape, Lord Charles Somerset, and again say, here I am. And he once again refused him permission. And Raymond Shaw wrote in his journal, That's the last time I ever ask a mere mortal for permission to proclaim the gospel. One, one believes that the reason for the hesitation to allow him is by that stage Methodists were already in the anti slavery movement in the oh. UK. And he didn't want any yeah, coming to the Cape to start that so the congregation on green market square so the reason why i mentioned slavery and the presence of many slaves attending at working um, at the green market was that it was an open and free church okay. to everyone to soldiers from british soldiers the colony dutch settlers as well as slaves so it was it was open over, over the years, over the history from colonial through apartheid history, it became a segregated, you know, community. Not by church law, but by society. Yeah. And the church acquiesced and gave in. So, one, not even one kilometer from Green Market Square is Betancunt Street. And beta in Afrikaans means outer. Yeah. And so, from colonial... Dutch days, the city was demarcated by the roads. So, as you know, there's the sea and there's the mountain. Yeah. And what runs parallel, left and right, are Betenkund and Betenkracht yeah. Street. So, Beta, that was the demarcation of the colonial city of Cape Town. I
0: never knew that.
1: So, Beta, Betenkracht Street, above Betenkracht Street, or outside, is Yeah. Again, where you have people who were excluded because of the colour of their skin, from Bunner, Yeah. Same on the other side of Bettencourt Street, you have District 6. So you yes. have Boer Karp and District 6, they were both considered to be outer. So it's very interesting if you look at the way the police cells and the police station is built. It's built on Count Street, but on the Bunner side of yeah. the road, but it faces outwards, which is bizarre. Why would you build a police station with its entrance not facing the inside of the, the city, but yeah. the outside. It's because of the belief that the threat will come from outside. Whoa. So, diagonally opposite the police station, a Methodist church was built on the other side of Baitingham Street. So, it's right on the yes. road. And that was actually the church that I was born into. And that community, under the Group Areas Act, so that was under apartheid language, the so-called Coloured Community. So during the days of apartheid, the church on Green Market Square had become a a white community, and then there was the so-called Coloured Community, again using apartheid designation terms. And what happened was the congregation in District 6 lost their homes and their houses and were forcibly removed in the late 60s and Yet would come back to the church every Sunday to worship For a number of reasons one these are your friends, but now you live very far away sense of solidarity and also protest that we will not be moved and Then in 1988 what happened was through some creative leadership in those days certainly under the height of apartheid the two communities Joined together. So the Baden Street Methodist Church is now the District 6 Museum. So museum that's um, the actual church sanctuary, it's been transformed into the which is an, an incredible museum and a very important reminder of our history. And the church community there came across to the church that used to be called okay. Metro, but then changed its name to Central Methodist Mission. The sad thing is that many white people left, so it wasn't much of a unification, Okay. it was uh, a negotiation and then people left, which, is, which was very, very sad. And that's, the, that's a brief history of the okay. prison community. So it's a very significant yes. history. So by the time
0: you arrived, what phase of integration did you walk into?
1: Well again, yeah, there've been creative, lots of creative people long before me, you know. So that's the, that's always the privilege as well when you come into a community. You, uh, you don't start from scratch. You know, there's a long history and there's a long. So you're always standing on the shoulders of other people. So, you know, it was a, a community and remains to be a community that is diverse, along, color, culture, language, class. And that's what makes it an interesting place to be. Fantastic.
0: When I arrived in, in NA, and in AA, in 2009, I started attending the meetings in the church. And I was quite uncomfortable as an addict to walk through the church to get to the meeting. It did not sit comfortably with me at all. I felt very nervous, I felt... I want to say I felt excluded, but that is the last thing that I felt. I felt that I was going to be excluded. And the last thing I felt was excluded. I felt immediately welcomed. You were always there with a smile to your staff, everybody. And it felt really weird. It felt very, very strange as, for me as a gay addict to, to be welcomed in this space. I became so comfortable that I started before I went up to the meeting praying in church and listening to, to you guys singing before your your service. And it was lovely. And it was really the first, what can I call it, religious space that I felt comfortable, welcome, and non-judged. So that was really an amazing step for me in terms of my spiritual journey. and I'm so grateful for that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Because I think you, at the head of this church, played a huge role. You are quite known for, what can I call it? You take people on where other people are too afraid. And I'm thinking of the Treatment action, Action Campaign. I'm thinking of homosexuality. I'm thinking of prostitution. Am I correct if I say that? that that's contrary to what, I suppose you're going to ask. (laughs) Before we go there, there's one question I want to ask, because this is going to to slot in with your answer. You studied, you've got a qualification in philosophy and economics, philosophy of economics. What is it? Philosophy of economics.
1: Mm. How did that happen? Now you've asked a few questions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Answer them, I'm ready.
1: (laughs) So, well... With regard to economics, the the word economics means management management of of the household. So in actual fact, everyone's an economist who manages a household. And people who manage households realize very quickly that if you want a peaceful household, then rule number one is be fair Ah. in the household. So it would be very bizarre if a parent were to feed one child and not feed the other child, yeah. clothe one not clothe, educate. It would be bizarre. Absolutely. In fact, even if you give one more roast potato than the other, there's chaos <laughs> in the house. Never mind if you don't feed. All right. So we 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 understand very simply that if you want peace in a house, you manage fairness. Yes. That's the basis of economics, and. The more I read, so the two things happened. The more I read the Bible, I realized the Bible actually is an economics textbook before it's anything else. Okay. And In terms of the fairness principle, sorry for interrupting you. No, in, in terms of economics, so what is economics? The management of the household? Well, now we're talking about the very big household of the world. Okay. And God is uh, the owner of the house, has allowed us to manage the house, and has a lot of advice for us to manage the house and the advice is always be fair, be fair, be fair but we keep forgetting or when we're at the bottom of the pile we shout fairness until we get to the top of the pile (laughs) and then we forget so that's around economics it's always around fairness and it's around inclusion that who's been left out and if anyone is being left out, there will never be peace. I would want to move them to Jesus, is the person in the Gospels that takes that principle of economics most serious and practices radical inclusion. That that the one thing I mean, the the only time he loses his temper that we have record of is result of people selling things in the temple, two things that, about that. One, where they were selling it, yeah. they were using the Gentile court. So it was basically a slap in the face of Gentiles to say, you can't have a relationship with God because you are only Gentiles, pagans, so we will use your worship space, which is a waste of space because no God's going to ever listen to you in any case, as a market. and So it was exclusion. And the other is that they would put the price up. would be manipulation around prices, so exportation. Okay. So your particular sin needs a lamb, and the lamb go and buy from the left-hand corner. And by the way, my, my nephew runs those lambs. Oh. So, okay, so, ex- so the thing that makes Jesus angry is exploitation and exclusion. So if I'm a follower of Jesus, I need to ask myself this question. What makes me angry? And I'm invited to be angry by the same things that made Jesus angry. And what made him angry was excluding people and exploiting people. Ah. Notice that he gets angry in a religious place. Yes. No else. And the church and all religious institutions have such a responsibility above all to be inclusive spaces. Yet, our experience is, throughout history, that very often the temple, the church, becomes the first place of exclusion, and when it should be the pla- the first place of inclusion. And so that's the sad history of the church, where it begins to worship the way it worships, begins to worship its own rules and dogma, and starts placing rules, dogma ahead of people. Yes. And I, and we see Jesus counteracting that completely. So, you know, if we're speaking about the the church has been obsessed for for all its history wrongly asking the question who's in, who's out. So first of all, woman. And to some extent, it's always been women. Women are still excluded to this day. Even though our own denomination ordains women, women have only been getting ordained for the last 42 or so years. Think about that in the whole history. And there's some churches that still would not. Yes. So women, black people, the poor always, still to this day, you know. And then people with any physical differences whatsoever and then obviously around sexuality. And the church has been obsessed with that. Absolutely obsessed. And I, I mean, I wonder why that is. You, you, you know, that Jesus says very little, if anything, about sexuality. And, but the church spends, has spent the last 30, 40, 50 years just in recent history obsessed. Yeah. Jesus says a lot about money, a lot about money, a lot about the dangers of wealth of which the church says very little. In fact, the church very says, normally says the opposite. In the name of Jesus you can become rich. Yeah. But Jesus said, if you're rich, you're going to struggle to get into the kingdom. So like, it's crazy. Yeah. So the way the church throughout history, the way the church has handled sex and sexuality, never mind queer sex and sexuality, has been extremely limited and sad. So in in some regard, the church has like a a traffic light approach to sex. If you're married, green light, go ahead. If you're not married, red light, not allowed. And that's it. There's no even amber. (laughs) It's like like a limited... (laughs) Limited traffic light, not even a full traffic light. It's just red or green, and red or green is determined by marriage only. Well, think about the human person in relation to that simplistic notion. So are we saying that a 16-year-old is not married is the same as a 26-year-old is not married, the same as a 36-year-old, a 46, a 56, yeah. who may be a widow, who may be divorced, or are we are we real are we are you serious? Are we really gonna put every single person? So the inability to have mature conversations around what does it mean to be sexual, what does it mean to live out sexuality? And that's that's in a heteronormative situation, a very low capacity to have conversations about what does it mean to live with integrity as a sexual being, and what does it look like. And then you add on top of that, so the inability to have just, you know, conversations around sexuality at any, any kind of rich Complex level and then you 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 want to now speak around queer sexuality um, That then people go to some verses in scripture That in my opinion have absolutely nothing at all to do with two people who respectfully consensually are intimate with another. Yeah. And take these verses that are completely out of context and ruin people's lives completely. Has have caused enormous trauma and death. Death through suicide. If people have not been able to live with themselves because of the false belief that their very being is an abomination. So the church is a, a lot to answer for, no different, no different to how the church supported apartheid, racism. So what what, what religion can do, this is, the, this is the negative power of religion. If you can convince somebody that this is God's will, then regardless of, of how heinous, how barbaric, evil it is whatever it is yeah. if you can convince someone that's God's will you, you get people to believe that in actual fact they are being holy while in fact they're being evil so then you can make good people do terrible things mm-hmm. without wanting to be evil without believing they're evil yeah. in fact believing that they are good and then there's no end to that evil because it's perpetuated with a deep sense of doing good. Absolutely. Okay, so we've had that history in this country around uh, the colour of one's skin, and it still continues. We've had that around gender, around patriarchy, and we have it in relation to sexuality. And now when you combine those, so if you happen to be black, woman, Mm. and queer, You are dealing with a situation of extreme vulnerability, extreme marginalization, to the point that to be a black lesbian in this country, your life is, is in danger. So then I ask the question, in response to that, what would Jesus say, what would Jesus do? And I believe that Jesus would use all of his influence and power that comes through his gender (laughs) and um, would want to um, Be very clear that the church Is a place of welcome and it's not a place of welcome on condition This is not and I I want to be myself to be very clear on this. This is not a love the love the sinner hate the sin to love someone is not a sin regardless of who that person is. So when you have two adults who consensually, respectfully love each other regardless of gender that can never ever be so. Ever. Mm. So there's a transition. The church has hated the the sin in quotes, and the sinner, then it moves to you know, love the sinner and hate the sin. And what I'm saying is this isn't a sinner because this isn't sin okay, at all. Yes. All right. So what the church should be doing is teaching all of us, straight and queer alike, on how to live out our sexuality. So that instead of being obsessed, who do we love and who do we touch and who do we kiss? And again, I'm always talking about consensual. consensuality for me is the primary value yeah. of any sexual relationship. Would you like me to touch you? That, that's the, the basis. The church should be teaching those values. The values of consent, the values of respect, um, gentleness, pleasure. Those are the values that the church should be instilling in any and every sexual relationship. And when a couple, whoever they may be, would like to come before the community and before God as their spirituality leads them to have that um, acknowledged and and blessed, then they should be free to do that. And clergy should be free to do that. Mm. At the moment, I am part of a denomination that does not give me the freedom, so that I cannot actually get a license. Okay, and that is under debate at the moment, and I'm hoping that in the, the very near future that that will change, that in fact, clergy will be able to honor their own conscience okay. in this matter. So again, coming back to what makes Jesus angry, exclusion and exploitation. And, and therefore, those two things need to be the two things that make me angry. And so, therefore, to look always out for those who are excluded and those who are exploited.
0: Hence your yellow banners outside the church. I I was so shocked the first few times I saw them. I thought, this can't be right. (laughs) Coming from from an Afrikaans conservative perspective, perspective, I thought, oh my God, this man's going to be really in trouble. (laughs) So one of
1: those banners was around... So you remember in Uganda, there was a law that was being passed around even the death penalty for queer people in yes. Uganda. So the, one, the banner that we hoist, so it's a large yellow banner that goes up onto the steeple. And just a little history about that. There's a, there's a bell in the steeple that weighs three tons. Three tons. <laughs> That's and, amazing. Yeah. And the last time it was rung was in 1897. Still there. In the bell tower. But the reason it was no longer rung was because when it when it would ring, it would shake the foundations of the oh, surrounding man. buildings. So it was a danger. So, which I love that the church is shaking the foundation. So we decided to, to raise a silent bell, namely the yellow banners that everyone can see from far and wide. And The banner was to the queers of Africa and uh, Uganda. So then God loves you as you are. And to remind people. And again, that's to love you who you are, as you are. That you don't have to change. That this love is not a dependent first change. And then this is a love that includes you and your sexuality. And then the most recent one that we've had up is around sex workers, and again, think of vulnerable people, Mm. and the banner read, Jesus was the first to decriminalize sex work, and then the reference John 8, and those familiar with the Bible will know John 8 was, they bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery, and the men surround her, and they are all carrying stones, about to stone her. As it was law, back in the Torah, and in the book of Leviticus, it says that adulterers, women, so again it's sexist, men wouldn't be getting stoned, but women would. In fact, it was very difficult for a man to be found guilty of adultery. So that the whole sex, gender discrimination. And so what would happen is the, the penalty was death, either by drowning, flogging, or stoning. So, what you have is you have a situation of legalized killing. Yeah. This is the death penalty, basically, uh, for adulterers. And not all adulterers, only female adulterers. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, they ask, you know, um, they come to Jesus, and Jesus addresses them. says, those of you without sins, throw the first stone. So, notice the conversation that Jesus has. What, what is crucial for Jesus is to disarm. These people, yes. to get them to reflect on their own life and stop being obsessed with the lives of others. Yes. He, in another time, said, "Rather deal with the plank in your own eye than the splinter in someone else's." So, what Jesus does is he he turns the table. The whole focus is on this woman, and what Jesus does is turns the focus onto the men and the people on the stones going to. So, what's what's a greatest concern for Jesus is the life, saving the life of the woman, yes. not who she was in bed with. So let's get our priorities right. And, and he addresses them, the powers, and disarms them. So they put their stones down. And so what I was saying was like in the Bible around HIV today, there's no HIV in the Bible, but there was leprosy in the Bible. Yeah. So when we were dealing with HIV and still are in this country, many preachers have said, well, you see how Jesus touched the leper, therefore we should not stigmatize people with HIV and have correlated leprosy and HIV. Now we know they're not exactly the same, but you can make the jump. So what I'm fascinated with is the very people who can make the jump from leprosy to HIV did not like my jump from adultery to sex workers. Sex workers, it's illegal. Illegal, and what that does is, when, when sex work is illegal, is that they have no protection before the law whatsoever. Yeah. So they can be treated very badly, mm. and they have no recourse. They have no yes. recourse against the client. When they report it, the police sometimes ignore mm. them or demand services. Yeah. Or unprovoked security imprison and threaten uh, them unless services. Or they are beaten by a client or somebody who just takes up their, their rage because they are so-called nobodies. When they go to the hospital, then very often um, they're not treated because... so they discriminate at every level and then Absolutely. levels of services. Yeah. So why... Uh, again, so they're they excluded, exploited, extremely vulnerable people. So I think they're the primary people that Jesus will be caring with. Then we go to the scriptures and he says these words. Even, and the word then was used, prostitutes today would use the word sex workers. Even sex workers will enter the kingdom of God before you Pharisees. He actually says that, mm. Jesus. So when I combine that and the adulterers, it seems to me that Jesus would want to, first of all, change the law. To make sure that the law protects people's dignity. So the question is not whether you approve of sex work or not. That is not the question. The, que- the primary question is always... Do you value the life of this person or not? Yeah. If you do value the life of this person, then we do everything we can to safeguard that life. We do not walk around saying, Well, I don't approve of this type of profession. Uh, selling booze, for example. Let's talk mm. about addiction. <laughs> <And> how many <laughs> <It's> lives, <not. laughs> lives are destroyed? Absolutely. We don't yes. say, Well, the person who sells who is at a liquor store, does not deserve X, Y, Z. We don't do that. Yeah. So don't they're a person. We may not approve of their vocation. In fact, their vocation may be quite destructive. I would argue that their vocation is a whole lot more destructive than sex work. Mm. So for me, and, and then I, I flip. So just like I go with regard to that this is not about loving the sin, hating the sinner and loving the sinner. For me, through my experience of engaging with sex workers, I really do believe. That one, everybody's humanity, including sex workers' humanity especially should be protected by all areas of the law. Two, through my engagement with sex workers, I realized that this is work. It should be afforded all the protections that any other work. Mm. For me, it's, it's, uh, it's precisely what Jesus would be doing decriminalizing that then would hopefully protect people's lives more and to also honor people's decisions. Yeah. And again that slogan that for many people around abilities nothing about us without us. So for me if sex workers are asking for the decriminalization then I need to really hear and honour that. Yes. Because that is that is a vulnerable group of people knowing what is best for them. Absolutely. And stand in solidarity. And then use my position, obviously, to be able to promote sure. that.
0: Oh, I love the fact that you stressed the word care. I think in the 12 steps, that's possibly my favourite word. We turn our world on lives over to the of God, and that's such a lovely concept to, to know that there's something out there caring, <laughs> minding, um, having an interest in whether I'm okay or not, and that's amazing. Last question in terms of a spiritual journey, I know it's the journey that there's no destination, it's, it's not a destination, it's, it's, the, it's the journey that counts. In your position where you are now, how do you grow spiritually?
1: So again, for me it's about engaging with the story of Jesus. Okay, I keep coming back there. That, that's the, now, I also want to be clear on this. That they're, so they're artists, and they're different artists. Some use pencils, some use oils, some use this different mediums. The, the, the only thing that I'm skilled in are the, are the pencils of Jesus. That doesn't mean the other artistic expressions. No. I just do not know them. I'm not a good sculptor. I'm not a good potter. I'm not, but I can use the pencils. Yes. So Jesus are the pencils. So what am I saying? I'm saying that, that, to change the analogy, that if the divine is on top of the mountain, there are many paths up a mountain. There's no single path. Yes. There are many paths. So I'm against any form of fundamentalism. However, to say that Jesus is the way is not to say that he's the only path. What it is, my understanding, is to say that whatever path we walk up, the mountain, if we want to get to the top of the mountain, then we will have to walk in the way of truth, in the way of love, in the way of gentleness, in the way of generosity, in the way of justice, in the way of fairness. That's the way we will walk. Yes. If you walk in that way, regardless of the path that you take, you will reach. Cool. But sometimes we obsess about the path and the name of the path. So, Freddie, if you're not walking on my path, you're on the wrong path. Yes. You see? And I don't believe that. I think there are many paths by many different names. What's more important than the name of the path is how you walk on the path. And so the only way, so, and then my analogy falls down because the divine is not on top of the mountain. As you walk up the mountain to the divine, you discover the divine is walking with you, Ah, walking with you, walking behind you. Oh. Uh, or, so there's no place where the divine isn't, but for the sake of an analogy. Yes. So silence, in all major traditions, silence has been, is a crucial part, so meditation, contemplation. Contemplative prayer, whatever language you want to, you know, yes. the different name. That's the thing. My experiences in the study of different faith expressions is that very often we—it's the same practice under a different name. Yes. No difference. If you go overseas and suddenly you're meant to drive on the right-hand side of the road, or or someone comes in and we drive on the left-hand side of the road, it are different r- sides of the road. But what's the point? <laughs> the point is to use the road as a means to. <laughs> So what exactly. happens is religions are... Fi- no, your religion's wrong because mm. you're driving on the right and so. on the No, your religion... I tell you what's wrong. is If you in a country that drives on the left and you decide to drive on the right, <laughs> that's wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's harmful yes. for you and for others. So that's our, our, our purpose here in life. Now for some people, the truth is that a particular path, let's say the Christian path or church maybe even a particular denomination has harmed people, has hurt people. So those people, out of a sense of honoring their own integrity, cannot walk that path. That does not mean they are going to damnation, that's nonsense. They walk a different path. And so it's not about the name of the path, the name of the religion, or of no religion. For some people, AA is their spiritual path. It's how one walks, whether we're walking in love, in truth, in justice, and if, to the extent that anything in a, anything or anyone enables you to walk lovingly, go for it, absolutely. <laughs> and to the extent that anything moves you to be exclusive or exploitative, then rather stop.
0: I love the word you used earlier. You used the word fair, and that is such a. Such a beautiful word in, in what I
1: see your work is. is you, you just. Well, it's a, it's, <laughs> hard, it's a hard word because, as we know, that we're born into an, a world that's unfair, mm. that it favors some. So, the real challenge always for any of us is to work out where have I benefited unfairly? Yeah. And then what must I do with that? So, as a white man, Mm -hmm. I have benefited unduly, unfairly, Mm. through no merit of my own. Sure, I may have worked hard, etc., but I was given a head start. Yes. And so, as, you know, I'll speak just as a white man in South Africa, part of our spiritual journey as white men need to be, how do I use my privilege and power that I've been given by a system. How do one, how do I redistribute and how do I use it to change the system so that the system can be more fair yeah. for more people. And and that's a real challenge because very few of us want to cut the branch that we're sitting <laughs> on.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. That's one of the first things they taught me when I got to React was Accept that life is not fair. If you can work from that principle, it's going to be far easier to deal with what you need to deal with. But Alan, this was amazing. I could sit here the whole afternoon. Thank you so, so very much. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you.
0: And enjoy the rest of the afternoon. And you. I was quite nervous about this interview, but I'm beyond happy that Alan agreed to chat to us. I felt as if I could have spent a lot more time talking to Alan about various things. I completely forgot to ask him about his love for music and playing guitar in the church. I understand that he is also a bit of a fitness fanatic and I wanted to place music and exercise in his realm of spirit, but we never got there. Maybe Alan will one day agree to talk to us again. It seems that all I will have to do is ask. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website which is www.freddy.org.za or find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash freddy.org.za forward slash or on Twitter at at Rensburg Freddy. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank you for listening. Be safe.